had a dream about this place. Okay, it's been a while, but we are now back. We're ready to continue the story of the octopus. However, we do have a few things, anomalies that we'd like to cover about uh, Danny's death. A few lingering uh, thoughts that we have before we we fully move on. Now, I personally kind of want to get back into it for a little bit at least, the issue of Danny's death. Was it murder? Was it suicide? Just because when you read around about this subject... I'm sure you've seen this as well. You see the argument a lot that it's very odd to kill this obscure investigative reporter over some pirated software. But what I'd recommend people do is go back to everything we've recorded so far and find the point where we actually say Danny Casolaro got, if he got killed, he got killed because of promise. Um, I think the argument we've been trying to make for a while is if it was a murder, it's be, it, it could have come from anywhere because of the sheer array of things that he was digging into. So Cabazon Ranch, um, the money laundering of the SNL scandal, uh, BCCI, arms trafficking, so on and so forth. If you take that narrow view, yeah, it's very unlikely that he was killed directly because of his uh, work on the, the Inslaw affair. But everything else that he was looking into, uh, he, one of his major sources, Robert Booth Nichols, we've talked about him, money launderer for the mob, possible hitman, definitely a guy who enjoyed, you know, um, scaring people and, and wasn't averse to using violence to get his own way. Danny himself, we reeled off that list of places he was going to go and visit just before he died. You know, pick one at random, Belgium, 1991. He wants to go there to start asking questions about the CIA, about um, drug trafficking. Okay, so something to, I guess it's to reiterate or to always keep in mind when thinking about Danny Casolero's last days is to remember what he was trying to do and how he was struggling in that. Again, he wanted to write a story that was nominally around eight different individuals, who these eight different individuals were kind of shifted and changed depending on success or failure of his investigations. And to link all of these, this, again, this, this always kind of shifting mass of eight people into a coherent ring so in trying to do this, Danny Casolaro is going out there and adding or removing parts and pieces as he sees fit in an attempt to put together a coherent story and a coherent narrative. However, what he is 
telling to the people around him, again, is that he is, however, far more successful and further along in his investigations um, than is actually borne out by, by his materials. So, Ghost, you, you mentioned earlier of, of dealing with frightening people um, or people that like to scare others. And I, and I think it's, it's interesting is, is almost it's – I'm considering that, again, Danny Casolero managed to actually scare someone else himself. And the person he scared was one of these frightening people. As to the reason exactly why, of course, we will never know because then if we knew that, we would know who, who, you know, who presumably killed Danny Casolero. It's worth considering that he is casting a very wide net. He is chasing down a lot of different sources and people. Essentially, it's kind of – it's a laundry list of um, the – the big scams and unsolved crimes and conspiracy theories of the 70s and 80s. He is going out there and talking to criminals who spend um, their entire day for years um, committing crimes and then telling these criminals and telling other people that, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've just about tied it all together and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow this wide open. Yeah, and then someone hears that someone gets word about this journalist who may well have stumbled across something that they were up to. The unanswered question or the loose end or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and someone got scared and then decided to risk it because it's, it's again, it is a risk to add, to throw another body under the pile. I mean, we talked in the previous episode about the threats that Danny was getting and these encounters that he kept having with uh, people who worked for the, the US Army, people who claimed that they were connected somehow to the CIA, and all of them seemed to know quite a lot about what he was looking into and were not happy about it, kept threatening him, so on and so forth. So the thing that we were talking about just before we started recording was... We have Danny going to Martinsburg, West Virginia. He's not meeting his dynamite source in, you know, a, a big city like New York or Washington or something like that. It's Martinsburg, West Virginia. It's this small town. It does have the feeling, and this might be the paranoia talking, um, but it does have the feeling of someone being lured somewhere almost. Uh, lured to a place where they're not really equipped are inclined to do the necessary investigative work if someone like Danny does turn up dead. Um, and I think that, I think I'm onto something there. And at the same time, I don't know if it is just the the paranoia talking, <laughs> the, the deeper that I've gotten into reading about all of this. But you have a few uh, things, a few more things that you wanted to uh, discuss really around the case and around Danny's death. Um, and I guess that's, we wanted to spend the opening bit of this episode, just not tying them off necessarily, because obviously you're never going to be able to do that, but certainly just bringing them up as things that are worth considering um, before we, we move on from Danny for good for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. Sure. And it's, yes, as you say, um, eventually you just have to stop. Yeah. And then yeah. go to, and then move on to something else. Touch grass, as the kids said. <laughs> Indeed.
Um, well, at least according to the autopsy report, Danny Casalera wasn't touching any grass. Yeah, so we've gone back over the autopsy reports, the, the press clippings from the time, uh, the interview that his brother gave uh, with the Martinsburg PD as well. And we thought there were still a few things that were worth uh, mentioning. Um, my The most maddening aspect of, of the story of Danny's death, I will bring up probably towards the end of this section. Um, but yeah, I mean, you want to start us off, Ben, with uh, some of the stuff that you've been thinking over? Okay, so again, going back to the last episode that we recorded, we discussed the ostensible cause of Danny Casalero's death, which is essentially blood loss due to wounds on the inside of his, his left and his right arm. And it is mentioned, I think we mentioned briefly what the implement was, but I wanted to go into a bit more detail. Because again, I think in the last episode, I call it a blade or a knife, of which it's actually um, neither. According to the police department report, according, you know, and according to all of the, I guess, the media that has then resulted from that, the implement that was, that Danny Casalero was said to have used on himself to produce the wounds that he did um, was a single-edged razor blade. So you may have seen these things, and I say you to the, to the audience. So imagine a wafer of razor steel that is about an inch and a half or an inch and a quarter wide and about three-quarters of an inch tall. It's a rectangle that is, has the razor cutting edge on one side, the, normally the bottom side, and then, a, you know, and then a thicker folded over piece of metal on the top. Now, again, it's not out of the question, and people do use them for other purposes than, than killing themselves, of yes, you can grab the, grip the razor by that folded over piece of metal at the top and, and cut whatever you wish. And, and again, D Danny Kessler only has two arms, you know, two arms and two hands. So to do this, you would have to grab, again, buy that folded over bit of metal on the top of the razor, open your arm up on, on one side, and then juggle it to your other hand, and then, and then slash your other arm. Well, this, this is something else as well I want to uh, put in here. And again, um, I think I said this at the start of the last episode, but um, just again, um, Apologies if, if this sort of talk is um, a bit dark or a bit triggering or whatever. But th th when you read accounts of the, the scene and of Danny's death, it's always described as slashes, as cuts. But when you actually look at the, the autopsy report, these were gouges. I mean, these were really deep cuts. Um, I mean, he got down through skin, muscle, fat, tendon. It wasn't like he was, you know, just sort of, dabbing at his wrist with this thing he really well i say he they were they were gouges they weren't just cuts i just wanted to interject there with with that um oh no no it's a good point yeah he would have had he you know he would have had to cut really deep um yeah which is again an interesting um state of affairs because again danny Casalero at this point would be according to the police reports um drunk um possibly also um, loaded himself up with, with um, 
prescription painkillers and sitting in a full bathtub. Yep. And also, again, this this leads back to the 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 Justice Department's report. Um, and again, in this report, they are at pains to discuss that Danny Casalero was experiencing physical decline, um, severe physical problems as a result of multiple sclerosis to the point that he, it is, quote, he could not perform various simple tasks around the house. So I feel like you can't have it both ways. You know, you don't get to say, oh, yeah, he was um, his multiple sclerosis had turned his brain into into a sponge. He could no longer enjoy, you know, beloved pastimes like volleyball and tennis and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, could he couldn't even open a window. Yeah. You know, um, and he was drunk and he had taken prescription medications and city in the bathtub. But this is still uh, this is still allowing himself to inflict some rather nasty wounds upon him. And I just I again, you can't. I don't think you can have it both ways there. We sound like we are definitively saying he killed himself, but all we're saying is it's a troubling contradiction there in terms. You're describing this man as, as weak and frail and at the same time that he was strong enough and, and cognizant enough to be able to inflict these really deep cuts in both arms, by the way, not just in one, which means half the job was being done while he was bleeding out as well so which is it you know and so that being said let's let's go on to another aspect of the autopsy that we had mentioned in the last episode um but is worth picking back up on and that is the toxicology panel so again at at the time of his autopsy um uh, blood um uh, and urine samples were taken. Um, and then these were then sent off to an analytical lab for testing. Now, interestingly, I guess in my past life, I say past life, but the job I used to do, um, I had to send off for testing a lot of, of different sort of samples. So I actually have a fair amount of experience in dealing with um analytical laboratories and trying to find or not find uh, the things you were looking for. So what, I, what sticks out to me, and, and, and I guess this makes a lot of sense, is again, in, the, in this toxicology report, they are listing out things that, that Danny Casalero's, uh, I guess the specimens were positive for. One was Tricyclic antidepressants, positive for opiates, positive for acetaminophen, and then negative for, you know, an array of things. Yeah, we've got barbiturates, diazepam. Yes, exactly. Cocaine goes on. Um, marijuana, amphetamines, uh, pancuronium, um, things like that. LSD, benzos. Um, yeah. And yeah. then also they tested no common acidic, basic, or neutral drugs. Um, but what this means is that, again, you when you are sending this sample out and 
you were essentially you were you, the, with the sample comes in order. You know, essentially, it's the test that you're ordering on the sample that you've just sent to the lab. And what is in that order is the things that you want the lab to check the sample for. So if you don't put it in the order, the lab doesn't check for it. Because for each of these different tests, for each of these different um, uh, uh, potential analytes, you have to do a different workup or a, you have to use different equipment. You have to, you know, have to prepare the, um, your sample differently. There's, so essentially you can't just send something out and say, give me everything under the sun because that's, that's, that costs too much money and that takes too much time. Um, so it is, it's understandable that the, the Martinsburg, um, I guess, what this would be the coroner's office didn't ask to test for every single drug that was listed in the, in, you know, the United States pharmacopoeia that they only hit like the, the, I guess the, you know, the top 20 or, 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 or something like that. Yeah. Because this is what his brother actually says in the interview with the, the local cops, isn't it? That if you don't know what you are looking for, you are going to miss it. So it is possible that if he was murdered, his attackers may have used a drug that simply, it didn't show up in the toxicology report because they didn't test for it. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and and again, depending on, on what it is, is you may have to, um, you know, go through a lot of, of work preparing your sample before you can actually expect to recover anything from it. Um, and if I, if I can, I'm, I'm, I, I recall sending out for, for testing a, um, a vitamin compound. We were checking it for vitamin A. Um, results came back from the lab. They didn't find any vitamin A. Well, come to find out, the type of vitamin A that we were using at the time um, was enrobed in various fats. It was a vitamin A that was designed for, for slow release or, or something like that. But essentially, if the lab didn't know that they had to prepare, that they had to, had to run the sample through five or six different solvent baths, as I remember the, the, when we actually found out how it was actually supposed to be tested, um, unless they, they knew to do that, they wouldn't be able to recover anything in the sample that you sent them, even if it was one of these more common items, but was packaged in a different way. Um, you also, you probably wouldn't have found it just because the lab isn't going to be set up to do all of that preparatory work to actually be able to recover anything from the sample based upon their, their test method. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where it loops back to the point we were making about the location, Martinsburg. These guys working at the coroner's office are, they're not, they're not going to be, um, capable of chasing up some, you know, exotic CIA <laughs> synthetic poison or drug or something like that. You know, um, they just, they, they wouldn't know where to begin. So aside from the toxicology, you know, uh, any other, I guess, outstanding things that you thought? Well, I have 
mentioned this already. I think I've mentioned it twice during the series now, but I was thinking about it again this week in the the prep for this episode. And I keep coming back to the fucking general at the funeral, <laughs> putting the medal on the coffin and saluting it. You can say, you know, for one reason or another, everything we've put forward as a what if, um, it doesn't count. It, it it's We'll debunk it. You still need to explain that to me, why it was a general at his funeral, placing a medal on his coffin and saluting it. I mean, there... There is an innocent explanation, which might be that Danny was friends with this guy and this guy gave him a medal, you know, as a kind of a gesture of uh, friendship or something, you know, one last uh, gesture. But that's never been mentioned in any of the accounts of his life that he was friends with, you know, someone like that. So what was going on there? I, I can't stop thinking about it. Oh, yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, it's It's one of those... It's, I guess, the the probably the oddest incident around his death among all the odd incidents. Yeah. When we were planning this series out months ago now, um, we came up with all sorts of sort of theories about what that might have been. And as you were saying, I mean, there comes a point where you do have to kind of walk away from it. But, you know... My my favorite pet theory still is that that guy was sent there simply to fuck with the family and and the other people at the funeral. You know, some kind of one last fuck you from whoever it was that that got to Danny. Do you want to know my favorite um, theory about that? Go on. Um, again, and this is this is this is pure speculation, but it's that that guy was was. Danny's case handler, case manager, is that someone was running Danny. That would be a very plausible explanation, I think, yeah, his case handler. I mean, if we're already allowing that the LaRoucheites are lurking around this story as well, they're haunting it. They were the ones who actually, in a way, hit Danny to the Inslaw affair. And we know about their sort of strange relationship with certain U.S. government agencies that I mean, that makes as much sense as anything else about that that incident that it was his handler. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I uh, that's speculation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just it, it's it's I'd say it's something not oh, I say entertaining to talk about, but that's that's almost gross in light of the the actual circumstances. Um, it's an engaging story that that does explain a number of things. Is probably just as likely not true. Yeah, that's the thing. Now, the thing is, in talking through Danny's death, there's a bigger story that starts to emerge because Danny isn't the only person connected, not necessarily to Promise, but to these various subjects that Promise is in turn connected to. So, you know, BCCI, uh, Iran-Contra, Iraq-Gate, so on and so forth. Danny isn't the only person who died in very strange circumstances during that period of time. And accounts of his life and his death tend to leave this out. Now, you'll some, in reading about this, you'll sometimes find mention of, I, I've started thinking of it as like the fabled 40. Apparently there are upwards of 40 people who were killed. We don't have the time here to like list all 40 possible deaths, but we do have 
a list prepared and with a reasonable amount of certainty, we can say, you know, at least these deaths are worth looking into a little deeper and thinking about the connection that they have to this broader story. Um, and I guess something else to bear in mind as well is that by 1991, George Bush is the president, Poppy. Um, the Gulf War has ended February of 91. And you have journalists who are beginning to pay more attention to Iraq gate. And, you know, that's the, the U.S. government secretly arming Saddam all through the 1980s up to the moment he invaded Kuwait, basically. And that in itself is, you know, shady. But then you've got to think about all the players involved in that also connect to all these other things that are happening as well. 91 is also the year when BCCI collapses and the litigation was flying over that. So by the time that people are beginning to probe all these issues, what they find are the same names and agencies and, you know, companies and whatnot popping up again and again and again, the same players. Um, and I thought that it might be worth, yeah, talking through some of these deaths and trying to sort of think about them in terms of that broader context. This is another period of upheaval, I would say, in, in what you might think of as the deep state. Um, and certainly, I can't escape the feeling that there's almost a, another process of, of consolidation going on here as the 90s begins. start man uh we could just start with Recon uh, michael reconosciuto's friends and associates and go from there just before we do that if i if i wanted to just revisit 1991 the end of the gulf war george bush uh he got a substantial bump to his popularity by going to war um and this lasted for a little while but as 1991 began to wear on, and then you know, as essentially it turned into 1992 and the and the election that then that you know presidential election that didn't happen, um, he was significantly less popular. So you have more people looking into the affairs and personages 
of the Bush administration um, as it is growing more unpopular. And that you have also the Gulf War and all of the stuff that is that that is tied into that, something that that significantly elevated Bush. But now it's over. It's less and less of a a positive, I would say. In a lot of ways, there's it's kind of echoed by what happened with Boris Johnson over here recently. He got all these props for, you know manfully steering the ship of state through COVID and then all the, the posturing and whatnot at the, the start of the uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. His popularity was beginning to wane before that. But it's interesting how there's a similar thing that you see, which is the media not really going after any of these really juicy stories because, you know, the, the public sentiment or political sentiment is not, there it's not at the right level yet to really go after these guys but yeah the you know the the glow of iraq starts to fade the glow of boris johnson's role during the covid crisis starts to fade suddenly all these stories start appearing about these various scandals um and his if not involvement there's certainly connection to them um I just find that quite interesting how it, the media does do this where they sit on stories for quite a while and then slowly you know, they detect a shift in the wind and they begin actually doing their jobs. <laughs> Waiting for the audience to be receptive to what you have to say. Yeah, yeah. And not to harp on the BCCI angle too much right now, because I'll be doing, I think I'll probably be doing an, an episode for this series about the collapse of BCCI. But you have to remember that by that, by 1991, BCCI was more than a bank. It was effectively a kind of a nation state unto itself. You know, it just, it didn't have any borders or boundaries, but it was so mind-bogglingly vast and complex that just looking into that alone could put a target on your back. So now that we've, um, I guess, now that we've uh, stepped away from Michael Reconosudo, shall we step back to him? We should, yeah. I think, I think we should pay another visit to Danger Man and watch the people falling around him. Um, so we have, there are a few people actually who've made this claim of at least 40 victims. Um, there's uh, Sherman Skolnick. He's the chairman of the Chicago Citizens Commission to clean up the courts. Do you know much about that guy? No, no. I mean, I, I've, once you said, you know, the, the Citizens Commission to clean up the courts, that is ringing some bells, but, but I, I, I couldn't speak about it in, in great detail. Yeah, yeah. And then there's um, Michael Rupert of um, From the Wilderness. I'm sure the listeners will be mm -hmm. familiar. Um, yeah, she, this guy I know quite a bit more about. <laughs> I really like Collapse. I Just to uh, go off on a bit of a tangent here. You can take it so many different ways, but I think it's such a good piece of uh, cinema. Even though I don't really like the implication at the end, you know, that... Um, He's somehow discredited because he struggles to pay the bills. It's kind of a dick move by the director. However, um, was also Sherry Seymour. I think she might have written, she was one of the, the first people to start writing about the octopus um, after Danny's death. Then you have Ken Thomas and Jim Keith. They wrote the, the most famous of the books about Danny, uh, which is Secret Government. And, you know, a number of other investigators. You can think of it almost as akin to the, the lists of witnesses and uh, 
other people who were murdered in the the aftermath of of Dealey Plaza. It kind of reminds me of that a little bit. But yeah, we've got a fair few people close to Rika who die. So in in no particular order, um, the first corpse on the list uh, of you know of of strange deaths connected to Michael Reconosudo is Dennis Eisman. This is a guy who, a uh, lawyer, he represented someone called, uh, named Jeffrey McDonald, um, a Green Beret out of Fort Bragg, accused of killing his wife and daughter. I might put the, the MGS guard alert sound in there with the Fort Bragg reference. I don't know. Yeah, I, I almost meant, I almost did a, a side note. It's like, yes, that's the Fort Bragg where it is experiencing um, just a lot of strange deaths. Yep, yep. Um, so Iceman, uh, dirty was dirty lawyer, um, was had indictments pending for money laundering and drug trafficking. In spite of this, or maybe because of this, uh, Michael Reconosudo thought that this was the guy to spring him from jail, um, which didn't end up happening because Dennis Iceman was found shot to death in his car. In April 1991, I think this was a a pretty scary moment for Rico, um, and I guess it, it will have driven home to Danny as well, just like what the stakes were, you know. And then there's Alan May. He was Richard Nixon's campaign aide. He was one of them. He was a defense lawyer as well, and he is alleged to have been involved in the October surprise. Uh, check the Casino series out for more information about that. Um, now. Alan May made the news in 1987 for defending a guy called uh, Werner Bruckhausen. Uh, Bruckhausen had been indicted for, believe it or not, folks, illegally selling U.S. computer and military technology uh, to, well, the Soviet Union in this instance. Alan May had an interview with Reconosciuto in June of 1991. I presume that Rico was auditioning new lawyers, maybe. Um, and four days later, he turned up dead at home. In this case, the coroner ruled it was a heart attack, but we've included it on the list because, you know, other sort of researchers and investigators have done as well. Seemed right to just include it anyway for uh, completion's sake. And next, again, it, it, this is a not a lawyer, but a private investigator, um, Larry Guerin, um, hired by Michael Reconosudo and didn't last long before he too was shot to death um, while on mission in Mason County, Washington. This brings up something else that we've talked about as well, which is where the fuck was Michael Reconosciuto getting the money for all of this? I mean, this guy, Dennis Iceman, who, uh, Iceman, who uh, represented Jeffrey McDonald, he did actually get him off of military charges. McDonald still did time, but these guys aren't cheap, you know. Um, where is all the money coming from for Rico to be hiring these people? That's one thing I've wondered. He was going through uh, lawyers and, and private investigators like they were going out of style. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, that's the funny thing. It's like, forget promise. Just the people connected to Michael Reconosciuto don't seem to last very long after they get to know him. And, and actually, I recall in reading the, essentially the indictment for the charge with uh, that Michael Reconosudo was was in jail on. This was the uh, dis, uh, manufacture and distribution of methamphetamine. The dollar values 
on the money that was moving around at that time. Um, it wasn't a lot, you know. I, I, I mean, it was it was several thousand, you know, but not, yeah, not not really. Um, I guess not 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 as one of you know at at the high table with all the money he was making. Yeah, he he was not exactly Walter White. So then we have another RICO attorney. This is John Crawford. He died of what was also ruled a heart attack. This is in April of 1993. And another lawyer, <laughs> um, Paul Wiltshire. So again, it, it, it's you have the people that, that Michael Reconosuto is going to are, are individuals who are already tied up or involved with some of these other interesting or high-level schemes, I would say. Yeah. In this case, um, Paul Wilcher was, had represented a guy named uh, Gunter Rusbacher. Mm-hmm. Um, Rusbacher was a weapon smuggler um, and a pilot and, of course, understandable from the time, a CIA agent. Um, he said that he had accumulated a list of 16 witnesses and a videotape proving that he flew Poppy Bush to Paris uh, for an October surprise meeting in 1980. Um, this is what's connected to with uh, yeah, the, know, the yeah the deal that they cut to delay the release of those hostages who were mysteriously released on the day that Reagan got inaugurated, uh, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, Ross Perot tried to dra- have this guy come out you know, to use in a, in a dirty tricks campaign against um, George H.W. in the 1992 elections, but they didn't find, but his investigators didn't find him credible at this point. The plane that uh, Rusbacher said that he flew Poppy Bush on, I think the investigators asked him to describe it, describe the interior and the uh, cockpit panel, and he couldn't do it. He got it wrong. So take that for what that's worth. Um, also, I ju- this is wild as fuck. And it's more, I suppose, reckless speculation. But it's just reminding me of a very funny rumor that I, I read ages ago when I was planning the Cartel World episode, which is Ross Perot obviously was trying to dig up anything he could on uh, Poppy Bush. And apparently he uncovered some evidence of... Uh, the the drug and money connection between uh, Bush's CIA and uh, Manuel Noriega. And in response to this, George Bush allegedly had a serious chat with his um, associates about how they might hit Ross Perot before the election, as in actually take him out, <laughs> which seems wild as hell, but I thought I'd just include that that thing that I'd read anyway in here. Really, you know, it's the stuff of forward, forward, forward email. Yeah. Paul Wiltshire as well. He was a member of, I think it was called the Patriot Facts Network. So now we're beginning to see this bleed over. We saw it a little bit with uh, like Bo Gritz in the last episode. We're, we're seeing more now of this bleed over between this scandal, the Inslaw Affair, and the world of right-wing conspiracism. That's going to become a more sort of dominant thread um, in this story as we go along, I think. So yeah, Paul Wiltshire, Patriot Facts Network, he sent a report to the Attorney General Janet Reno, and that had a lot of stuff in it challenging the official narrative of Waco. Also had some random information from Bruce Barker about 
the October surprise. And it also had a page of material about the Inslaw case because why not? You know, yeah. I guess he why was not? posting before posting was a thing, you know. <laughs> so then we have uh, a guy named Ian Shapiro, yes. um, who was a low level contractor or operative, uh, worked for both American and British security services. Um, he was uh, he was an intelligence peddler. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you could almost assume that he's mixing equal amounts of, of truth and bullshit into whatever he has to try and sell. Mm -hmm. So this is another guy, however, that, again, Michael Wakanasudo sought out and engaged to use in Michael Wakanasudo's efforts to get out of jail. Because, again, remember in all this, Michael Wakanasudo is, is jailbird. Um. So in November of 1992, his wife and his three kids were discovered shot dead. Um, and he was found dead days later in his car, um, supposedly died of cyanide poison. Way out in the desert as well, man. Uh, a lot of things seem to happen in the desert in this story. <laughs> there's a lot of it down there. And there's a woman called uh, Vali Delahanty. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, she came forward to Rika. She said that she had information about a DEA plan to frame him for meth manufacturing. And then what do you know? She disappears in August of 1992. And her remains are found by a dog walker in April of 1993 uh, in, in Lake Bay in Tacoma. So the body certainly are, are really piling up, especially when you add in, you know, the Cabazon uh, ranch situation and the friends of Rico that died in the early 80s as well. And uh, another associate of Rico's, uh, Peter Sadvigan, was, I don't know if he was a private investigator or just one of Rico's friends, but he had been tasked with um, ferreting out some documents that, that Rico believed could uh, prove that the DEA had, uh, that it was all frame up. And once again, this is another guy who is shot to death, December of 92. Yeah, and this is another maddening thing about this story. We've encountered it before, but just in that alone, you have a Rico associate. We don't know if he was an investigator or just a friend or a, a concerned citizen who thought that it was a miscarriage of justice that he was trying to sort out or whatever. And he's chasing up documents that Rico thinks can get him off the hook but you know it's you read these accounts and these sources and it's like well what were the documents what was in these documents you know what was the nature of their relationship it's there's so much about this story where it's very hard to pin down the the specifics um because you know that thing we were talking about reporting time and again like a photocopy that fades a little bit more every time and then there are there are a couple of other reporters as well who were looking into I would say connected scandals uh, like BCCI or arms trafficking, they also end up dying mysteriously. Uh, so there is Anson Un. Uh, he'd been investigating Jimmy Hughes. Hughes was the Wackenhut security guard who'd been implicated in the murder of Fred Alvarez at the Cabazon Ranch. Um, Anson, was he tracked a tip to uh, Guatemala and he wound up being shot dead in July of 1991 which was, you know, not long before Danny died, all of his files and floppy disks, the ones that he'd been carrying with him, 
on his travels, they vanished um, during the investigation. They were never returned to his uh, his colleagues or his friends or family. If if you recall from again our last episode, one of the people that we discussed as as someone who was potentially involved in the death of Danny Casalero was uh, Major Joe. Um, who eventually became Colonel Joe because he he did actually make Lieutenant Colonel. Um, That guy supposedly threatened his ex-girlfriend by saying, and I'm paraphrasing, you, you know, he's talking to his ex-girlfriend, you're going to end up dead like Danny Casalero and that reporter in Guatemala. The Justice Department, however, later says that uh, the the ex-girlfriend isn't a credible witness. So just an interesting one there. So, yeah. So the year before Anson is killed, uh, there's Jonathan Moyle. He's a former RAF pilot. He's the editor of Defense Helicopter World. And they find him hanging in a wardrobe with a, a pillowcase over his head. And uh, Moyle had been in contact with Danny. They knew each other. And he was researching the illicit arms trade. And a lot of what he was looking into overlapped with things that Danny was looking into as well. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. Now, this was in, he was found in Chile. And both the Chilean and British authorities tried to push the idea that this was a case of autoerotic asphyxiation that had gone wrong. And I can promise you that it was the British who suggested they run with that. What immediately popped to mind is the... Again, here a couple of years back, the spy that's, that I guess uh, zipped himself up into a suitcase. Jesus Christ, yes, yes. And it was death by misadventure. Because <laughs> apparently he, he yeah, he was, uh, he was some real perv that liked tying himself up and getting into suitcases in bathtubs. They're absolute bastards. It's not enough to kill somebody. Then you have to murder their reputation as well. But yeah, just as an addendum though to that, the Moyle um story there was a needle mark on his leg and that was given short shrift in the investigation and so was the fact that he'd actually been looking into the role of carlos cardon in iraq gate you know so um cardon is a guy that has put i think we've mentioned him in this story but we will probably be mentioning him again because he was identified by Ari ben Manash, the Israeli spy, as being the intermediary between Earl Bryan and Saddam in the, the promised deal that Earl Bryan cut there. That's another thing I should mention. By 1991, allegedly, promise has spread everywhere. And it's possible that it was in use to some degree in Iraq. Uh, I don't know if it was the, the modified version or not, but it's possible. Um, but we'll be getting, we'll be coming back to that. There are two more names. The Godfather, I guess, Robert Maxwell. He's found dead in November of 1991. We will be getting deeper into him and his role, but he was running point on the sales of Promise for the Israelis. And again, according to Ari Ben Manash, a big part of the reason why he was killed is because of. Um, yeah, his, uh, his, his role in selling Promise and uh, various financial schemes that he'd been running with Mossad. There's one more, which is Alan Standoff. This comes from Bill Hamilton, and here he's speaking to a reporter called Joseph L. Flatley. Uh, he works at uh, Fail State Update. Quote, 
Following Danny's death, a US intelligence source whose information proved to be accurate whenever I later had an opportunity to learn the truth, told me about a break-in the week before Casolaro's death at a four-story brick townhouse on Jackson Place near the White House, and also claimed that Casolaro had been killed in the course of a covert intelligence operation by the Defense Intelligence Agency that was intended to identify and retrieve every copy of computer printouts from a promise-based intelligence database known as Main Core which was allegedly administered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency under the continuity of government program for handoff to the US Army and the DIA in the event of a national catastrophe and the need to detain Americans whose loyalty to the United States was under suspicion. I just want to cut in here and remind listeners that by the mid-1980s, Wackenhut had a list of about two or three million um, American subversives of their own. And we know that Wackenhut is connected to this promise modification deal somehow that took place out at Cabazon Ranch. Sorry for the, uh, the interjection there, but I just thought I'd remind you of that. Anyway, um, this source claimed that Casolaro had obtained these sensitive computer printouts from a civilian employee of NSA's Vint Hill, Virginia intercept facility named Alan Standoff. Standoff was found beaten to death on the floor of the backseat of his own car in a national airport parking lot during the first several days of January 1991. I mean, the list does go on and on and on, but I, I guess they're some of the more notable names. And Alan Standoff is especially interesting because this, this is a guy who was identified directly by Bill Hamilton as having died because of um, the Inslaw affair like a, a direct consequence of his involvement. So speaking of Bill Hamilton, now, um, do you want to, I guess, hone back in on the thing that we actually started this series with and that we've now spent several episodes getting away from? I think that would be a, a pretty good idea, actually. Yeah. since we, we've really gotten into the promise um, narrative. And it's worth getting back to, in part because that's the, that is the ostensible point of the series, which is the story of where promise went and who used it and why, and then the, the reputation that it developed versus the promise reality. Right, this is the thing that I wanted to run past you because it ties in. Already we've mentioned Promise's use in main core. Um, 
However, there's another victim, another dead body. Uh, the guy is called Barry Kuznick. He was a computer engineer and he'd allegedly worked on promise enhancements. The reason I bring this up is because it, it neatly ties into what we're about to talk about, which is the promise myth versus reality. Because according to some sources, and this is from Secret Government, Kuznick's enhancement was called Brainstorm, an artificially intelligent program that applied the prognosticating ability of promise to individual thought patterns. It ostensibly allowed promise to deduce from personality characteristics the potential action of the person being traced. As in the Insler case, Kuznick had apparently made the modifications under a government contract that the government failed to pay, attempting to drive Kuznick into bankruptcy. Uh, Kuznick had previously done communications and intelligence work for Northrop Corporation uh -uh, and the US military. His body had not been found and nine months after he was reported missing, family members were unable to get known business partners to acknowledge knowing him. Five boxes of his belongings were found in a lockup facility. So all of that is quite scary, but I just want to zero in on that uh, artificial intelligence program because now we're, we're kind of getting back to this, this issue of, yeah, myth versus reality with promise and whose interests are served, I suppose, by, by talking up the capabilities of this program and of the modifications that were made to it. So artificial intelligence. Um, I guess if you are talking to someone who is trying to sell something to a group of credulous uh, venture capitalists um, or talking to someone who is trying to sell you a, an electric car. Um, artificial intelligence is uh, a real thing that is absolutely right here or is just right around the corner. All you have to do is just sign a check and then, then we'll get it right over to you. Um, of course, if you can't tell already, I, uh, um, I pretty much heavily discount any notion of artificial intelligence um, in part because it, you know, the, the processing power that would ostensibly be needed to actually make something intelligent is uh, nowhere within reach at this point. Um, but what there can be, and this is what stands in for artificial intelligence is imagine an enormous list of if then else propositions so essentially it's it's almost like say you take an object in your room and then you say okay you know first proposition you know uh, if this object is square then you do these things. Else, essentially, if it's not square, then we go to the next step. If the object is round, and then you know you go after so many things, is it big or is it small? So you can ask an awful lot of yes, no questions, um, and just have a big, big list of them. You know, and if you have a fast enough computer, you can ask all of these <laughs> these yes, no questions in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and that, I would say, is kind of what passes for artificial intelligence. Um, 
if that you have enough time and effort put into putting together the list of um, of questions and assumptions, um, you can make something that that seems pretty insightful. And this again ties right back into now what supposedly um, was programmed as an add-on to promise. Again, you could you could predict based upon thought patterns. I just want to want to add as well though. The sentence actually says an artificially intelligent program that applied the prognosticating ability of promise to individual thought patterns. So it's its own thing that uses promise to predict the actions of individuals which really isn't what promise was would going to do. At least not quite. Um I guess it's almost I, I I hear something like that and I and I can just I I I have in my mind's eye someone taking out a, a pair of calipers and trying to measure the skull of whoever they're talking about because built into all of these things that are supposed to predict the future is that a you have to have a big mass of data that you're pointing this at right so. Already there, you have a question of, of, of garbage in, garbage out. In other words, I, I've, I've, I've gathered up all these data points, and then I'm going to hope to predict either a person's actions, what they're thinking, or the movement of a population, what have you. But you, there, you've already, in a way, made an assumption that the information that you gathered will actually tell you what you want to know. I'm trying to think of a way to kind of distill it. I can buy the... Promise would give you a statistical probability of something that is likely to happen based on the data that you fed it, either about, you know, a group of people or an organization or a bank or whatever. But the way it gets spoken about, it's like it's not a prob it's not a, a a probability that it's given you. It is an actual definite prediction, you know, a riot is going to kick off in this town on this date. And it's going to have these people leading the charge, and it's just that is it's that's supernatural, <laughs> really, isn't it? Like, yeah, you've hit upon, I guess, the next point of our proposition. This is something that was made by human hands, right? A person, a computer programmer, sat down and ground out. It could be you know thousands or even hundreds of thousands of lines of code, and in that computer code is it establishes how the information, how the data will be assessed and judged. You almost have like a train of, of assumptions and propositions that could entirely all be garbage. Of great, we have a pile of data that may or may not actually be of any use. And then what we're doing essentially are a pile of garbage. And then to this pile of garbage, we are going to ask it a bunch of garbage questions. The artificially intelligent, supposedly, thing is ultimately made by someone who is biologically intelligent, again, made by human hands. So we've analyzed, we've analyzed our pile of garbage by asking it garbage questions. Do you expect to get anything out that is other than garbage? In other words, if this thing tells me what I don't want to hear, I'm not going to buy the software from you. So I almost feel like, again, in tying this, in going back to 
you know, thought pattern predictions. That really sounds like something that a bozo in the boardroom would just think is great. And this is going to be what, you know, catapults us to something. And this is the thing is, let's say the CIA wants to get Promise installed on this banking uh, firm's system. And you have your sales rep and this buzzer in the boardroom. And um, the buzzer in the boardroom hears all this and says, yep, that's great. That's what you need as the CIA. You need him to think that Promise is this almost supernatural beast. Get it installed on his banking system. Uh, and then what you're actually doing is you're using it to just spy on like where the money's going, uh, occasionally intervene and redirect financial flows and whatnot. All this other stuff to me, it feels like a kind of necessary sales spiel, you know, to get, get the Trojan horse in the, in the gates of the city, so to speak. And, and, and to continue from there is it's again, let's stick to the, to the example of, of a bank. Part because we know that that promise was installed um, on a lot of, of banking um, computers. Again, we had previously discussed. Well, geez, you have a pile of garbage data, and then you do garbage analytics to it, and you get garbage reports out. Well, now we can change that first proposition. You know, that first part of that. It's like, well, we don't have garbage data. What we have is the essentially the account information for a bunch of people, and money is coming in and money is going out. So then based upon that account information, let's not ask it, oh, um, is this person going to vote for this or that political party? It's who among this population is sending greater than normal amounts of money overseas. You know, uh, of in terms of of now that again of nail of rather than spending time again thinking about mind reading it's what what can we learn from running statistical analysis on this big pile of data that we have the example of a bank is a really good one so now you you are the CIA you have promise installed on this banking uh, firm's software system right so then you can see where the money's going. And if they send that money to a computer on the other side of the world that you also have Promise installed on, a different bank, then you can see who's received that money and what are they doing with it. Um, and yeah, gradually over time, you build up a pattern of where is all this finance going, all this currency, what are these people doing with it? And what bank accounts are they sending money to, you know, like offshore or whatever? And yeah, through the use of like that data, then you can start building up a picture of, of whoever it is that you're spying on. I don't want it to sound like I am entirely cutting down or denigrating what Promise could actually do, which was all of, you know, again, all of these statistical and, and data management tool and all these data management um, uh, functions, it did those very, very, very well. The software was being pushed by high-level uh, salespeople, people with a lot of contacts. Again, you actually have a really good product that could do some special things. And you have a, a team of, although they may not see it like that, 
of connected insiders going through their Rolodexes, calling up everyone they know and saying, hey, I've got a deal for you. Do you want to predict the future? Because ultimately, the people that are that are that are making the decision on this, um, or at least I'm, I'm going to assume, um, are those bozos in the boardroom. You know, again, there there's a split between how something is sold and how something is used. And I feel like what has actually gone into the journalistic accounts, um, what the 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 people who are then interviewed, particularly because they are the high level ones, is they are recounting what they have been told about the thing that they're buying versus actually how has it been implemented and how has this functioned and how has it been compromised as well i suppose um because yes that that's ultimately the thing that we kind of we keep hammering on because we have to remember that it was ultimately kind of just another tool for spying in the hands of you know like the mossad or NSA or CIA. So you can think of, we've mentioned this before, that there are different versions of Promise by 1991. You have the the one that is in circulation that is just, you know, a standard sort of database administrative tool, very nifty. Then you have the compromise version, which is what the CIA and Mossad are selling to states and entities that they would like to have more information on, harvest more information about. And then you have, I guess, the techno myth version of Promise. And this has been spoken about on like the early, you know, internet message boards and whatnot. This is the version of Promise that most people encounter first because that's how it's described, you know, in, in accounts of a super powerful, all knowing big brother type thing. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with you. And again, it's the, the myth, I feel like both cleverly or or not cleverly um disguises and puts in the shade the the thing that that promise accomplished above everything else that was what really really made it valuable as a as 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 a covert mean or rather as an espionage tool and that is um a it told you how information was moving around. And the other half is, is that it tells you what that person thinks is important, which is like, that's the, which is almost, that's the gold standard of, of intelligence gathering, which is not someone, what someone did yesterday, or even what someone is doing now, but what their intentions are for the future. And if you can get promise installed as it's alleged to have been on say, uh, the Libyan government's computer systems. So you know what they consider important, who they think they might maybe likely to go to war with in the near future, um, where they're focusing their resources, what, you know, government policies, all kinds of shit like that is just open to you. And the the importance of that stuff as well to the person who's using the, the computer program. Yeah, absolutely invaluable information. And, and all of that is far, far, far more valuable than having just access to the 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 source database or this original mountain. Because um, again, say again, back to the banking example. You say you know, promise uh, it has fed into it the the banking accounts of I don't know fifteen million 
foreign citizens. Um, how are you going to tell, looking in that 15 million citizens' banking records, which one is actually of any value whatsoever? Promise answers that question by saying, well, geez, you don't, you don't have to. You, you look over the shoulder of the guy that is, that is using Promise um, and see what that person thinks is important. And you can see how important that would be, particularly if you are, you know, if, if BCCI is using Promise, say, um, and we know that BCCI is also funding and financing all these different off-the-books operations, and they have Promise installed on many of their computers. You, as the you know the handlers or whatnot, you you have a great sort of three-dimensional view of um, how the money you are sending is being used, how it's being spent, if anybody's skimming, if everybody's doing their jobs, you know, making sure that all these little cogs are, are grinding along in the correct way, I suppose as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and again, built into Promise are those excellent inward-facing reporting tools. So, you know, you mentioned, you know, skimming or, or you know, things that are anomalous, I guess, is, is, yes, Promise had from its very beginning. That is one of the things it was, it was designed to do by, um, by the Hamiltons and by Inslaw. It was, you know, it would tell you where to focus your resources. I suppose this is where we can begin wrapping up here because that's a very crucial thing to remember as well which is the cia nsa allegedly the fbi as well um they were using promise um as were a lot of local police departments as well that have their own little intelligence um outfits were using their own version of promise and this now brings us back to the issue of main core um, and Oliver North, because Oliver North was using a copy of Promise, presumably not a backdoored copy. This was a straight up, does what it says on the, the tin copy of Promise to organize a, a secret database of subversives and dissidents in the United States of America, particularly around the time of the uh, Iran-Contra scandal with the design that if there was some kind of um, overthrow or, of the US government or something like that, some kind of mass civil unrest, his thinking was that he would be able to use promise to organize who should be rounded up and put in uh, detention facilities, you know, subversives, uh, radicals, the rest of it. And that kind of brings us now, I suppose, to the enterprise, which we don't have enough time to get into in this episode, but we certainly will be talking about it um, next time out. And yeah, the the fact that main car has survived right up through uh, the 90s, up to the Bush administration, it's probably still there in some form. And Promise itself kind of has gone on, undergone these, you know, evolutionary processes along the way as well, adaptations and modifications and, and whatnot. And this is where I think we're, we're starting to get to the the central thrust of, of this part of the series, which is not just like the utility of promise, but the, the fear and paranoia that it's inspired as well, that, that people have felt in reading about it and about its capabilities. Mm -hmm. What we have laid out before us are 
I guess it's we're going to the big stories. And so, so essentially, so having discussed some more of Promise's background and some more of how Promise may have been used and how those who were using it are different from those who are buying it. Let's step beyond these generalities and let's look into some of these actual, I guess, case histories. And these are some big cases. Very big cases. I mean, if you thought that things had been kind of schizoid and insane so far, the remainder of this series now is, I think we're probably going to approach like the cocaine supernova of uh, paranoia and <laughs> whacked out. <laughs> we were saying earlier, like no, no wild speculation, please. But it's like, mm, we'll, we'll have a little bit of that in episodes to come. I think, I think we've earned it. Yeah. Because there are, again, in this myth uh, of that is the, collectively the promise myth, you know, the promise epic there are there are strands in there that are common um you know and and there are a few again as as we discussed earlier uh the promise software has lineages and yes you can actually follow those lineages through history because it it is important to to know that that at some point in the past there was only one copy of promise one and that was on the computer systems that that inslaw was operating it was then propagated out and propagated by some real slimy individuals and some real slimy agencies and so that's what we're going to spend i guess uh, these ha next handful of, of, of episodes in is rolling around in this slime and filth. Like hogs just, just gobbling up those tasty deep state truffles, I think. In tracing promise and its spread, you encounter, you know, the these big epic scandals and whatnot, but then you also, you do start thinking about other stories that you're aware of. For example, say you are a, a hot shit financial whiz inexplicably at one time hired to work at the Dalton School in New York. And now in the 1980s, you describe yourself as a financial bounty hunter. What software, pray tell, would come in very fucking handy if that was your job? If you are working for an Adnan Khashoggi or a Robert Maxwell, tracking money all over the world, you know, what, what platform, what program might help there? I'll say right up in the present day now, um, you're a Silicon Valley CEO. You are known for Blood Boys, mostly. And you have a new revolutionary uh, database administrative technology that can offer you a five-dimensional look at nation states and corporations and whatnot. Maybe you call it Palantir. I don't know. Where did the original idea for that come from? And are there any people that possibly connect that company to Inslaw? I'm quite excited, really, about what's coming. I'm looking forward to just going fully off the deep end. 